We're working our way through uh, the book of Romans, the letter that changed the world. This is part 56. The, the, here's the topic. It's, a, it's kind of a Don Horbin title. It should have been simpler and shorter. Exploding the postmodern myth that doctrinal convictions breed division in the body of Christ. In other words, you know what? If we just got rid of all these silly doctrinal distinctions, we could all just be one body and one loving body of Christ. There's not a shred, by the way, outside of Scripture. There's not a shred of historical evidence that that's true. The opposite of, of uh, doctrine in church is state church. You end up with what the Lutheran church used to be in Germany or the Presbyterian church used to be in Scotland or the Church of England used to be, the Anglican Church in England, where you have a, a state-controlled church. That's the opposite of, of having sound doctrine in a church. It isn't unity. It's a state-controlled church. That's not the reason. That's just a simple fact of history. The text is Romans 14, 5 to 12, and we um, looked at this last week. So what's happening tonight, just so you don't panic, a long introduction but only one point. So once a little later on, one point. I think we're all agreed a sermon should have at least one point, right? So that's what we'll work toward. Bit of background first. The text we read last Sunday and tonight, Romans 14, 5 through 12. And then we'll review a little bit that, uh, of, of the things that we studied. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that has to be one of the strangest bits of advice. It's not at all what you would expect Paul to say, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Talk about eating uh, meat that might have been offered to idols, might not have been certain dietary regulations that applied to certain Old Testament uh, uh, holy days, those kinds of things. doesn't mean just eating food at all. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And it's right around here that you start thinking, Paul, what are you, what are you getting at? What are you talking about here? What's this have to do with the subject? So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? over these kinds of issues. That's what he's talking about. For we all stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We, Paul includes himself, Christians, non-Christians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. 
some of the most controversial and interesting and misskewed verses in the whole New Testament. That's what we just read. And, and so I think it's important that we establish our bearings again a little bit. So this is the review part. The issue Paul's dealing with between weak and strong, those are his labels, weak and strong Christians in Rome, is the issue of the centrality of grace and the cross in the Christian faith. So, so the weak aren't weak because, well, they're just not as bright or not as sharp. He doesn't mean that. And the strong aren't strong because, well, they just know more about everything than the weak. That's not what he means by weak and strong at all. The strong are those who, in this respect, are strong. They're the ones who, they're strong in their essential understanding of salvation by grace, through faith, plus nothing else. The weak, whether coming recently out of Judaism with the tradition of the law, all the dietary regulations, all the festivals and seasons and holy days, they, they were reared in that, grew up in that. Either for that reason or, or perhaps Gentiles coming out of pagan idol worship with ceremonies and feasts and festivals and then Later on, they came to Christ, and now they're at somebody's place, and they're offering meat, and they don't know if that meat was offered to an idol, because that would be hard for them to deal with that, coming out of the bondage that they had come out of. They're weak in that sense. At least those with a Jewish background especially, they wrestled with seeing how all these things had reached their end, their completion, their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So that's where these verses sort of have their fountain. So we need to remember a couple of things. Paul isn't saying, you know, weak Christians are fussy about holiness, while strong Christians, well, they think they can do whatever they please. He doesn't mean that. Paul, Paul is dealing with incidental religious practices that have been fulfilled and replaced in Christ, and that's all he's dealing with in this text. These are the things Paul says. Don't, don't, it's, don't squabble over those things. Don't squabble over those. He's not talking here about, about sexual immorality or dishonesty or materialism or idolatry or pride or some other form of really sinful behavior. We, we know that because if you want to see how Paul deals with real issues of sinfulness in the church, you go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5 and and 11 to 13, here's how Paul deals with when he perceives in the, in the body of Christ, not just disagreements over what can be eaten and not eaten, but real issues of immorality and sinfulness. Here's how Paul deals with those. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it's actually reported. Here's what I'm hearing, Paul says. That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Terrible thing. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is not a, well, let everyone kind of go 
be fully persuaded. Not this. When you are assembled, he goes on, in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is presence, is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. Now that's a very different tone, isn't it, than the Romans 14. What have I to do with judging outsiders? I'm not talking about the pagans here, he says. Is it, not those inside, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Purge, purge this evil person from among you. Okay, this is the same Paul who wrote Romans 14, our text tonight. In these issues, he's absolutely firm on maintaining and observing biblical holiness. No debate, no compromise. There's no exhortation here to be open-minded or tolerant or indifferent to genuinely sinful action. And that's not what Paul's dealing with in Romans 14. He's not dealing with sinful actions. Weak people who don't understand all that has been brought to completion in Christ. That's what he's dealing with there. He's defending the doctrine of salvation by grace rather than by works or any other religious system. Keeping festival days and feasts and ceremonies it's not going to appease God's wrath. It's not going to satisfy his desire for holiness. Only the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ does that. That's what Romans 14 is about. And that leads just to another quick reminder about Romans 14 on our opening text. We spent a whole teaching, and I just want to quickly recap it so we haven't got to point one yet. Spent a whole teaching. I just want to recall it here, just in case you weren't here last week. Paul was a firm believer in keeping the Lord's day. So when Paul talks against esteeming the day, 14.5, or observing the day, 14.6, he's not talking about the Lord's day. He's cautioning against trusting in the days and seasons and festivals of their previous religious associations, primarily in Old Testament Judaism, and some Gentile idolatrous religions. He's dealing with the danger that he spoke of in Galatians 4, 9 to 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons, and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Note the plural, the reference to days, Galatians 4.10, and months and seasons, Galatians 4.10. So this is what Paul's dealing with in Romans 14. He's talking about a whole religious system that had developed over centuries where the calendar had become bunched up with one season, one festival, one day after another, dietary regulations, each one accompanied with what could be done, couldn't be done, what could be eaten, what couldn't be eaten. And the people were taught that in keeping those things, there was a way of achieving a standing with God. And Paul says, it's not that won't work anymore. Christ has come. 
He talks about the same thing in Colossians 2, 13 to 19. Is that in your notes? It's kind of a long... Yes? Okay. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So the devil would come and he would accuse us all the time. You failed, Don. You broke God's law here. You failed here. You failed here. And, and, and because I was a sinner, Satan could do that. But now my life has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Satan comes and, he, and he's got nothing, no armament. He's got nothing to use. It's a beautiful picture. Now, back to what Romans 14 is about. In verse 16, Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, that's the church, he's talking about us, grows with a growth that is from God. You can't do it with your festivals and your days and your diets. And you can't do it with that. We grow as we're attached to Christ. Only Christ, Paul says, can deal with sin. Only Christ can deal with the accusations of the devil. And now that Christ has accomplished redemption for me, for you, on the cross, he says to rely on any other system, it's just useless. Now here's the point that gets, I think, tragically missed by multitudes of New Testament Christians. Pastor Don, how do you know in Romans 14 when Paul talks about getting attached to days, how do you know he's not talking about the Lord's day? How do you know he's not just saying, everybody worship whenever you want to worship. We're not bound by those things anymore. How do you know he's not talking about the Lord's day? And I need to explain that because that's the position I maintain. The reason I know Paul didn't mean to downplay the importance of the Lord's day in Romans 14 and 15 is Paul understood only too well the significance of the Lord's Day. You see, the reason for its joyful celebration, the reason for ongoing, regular, disciplined participation in the Lord's Day was its purpose, its purpose was an ongoing purpose in the New Testament body of Christ. It was the ongoing reminder that God had brought about the final, complete, longed-for deliverance of his people from the bondage of sin and the futility of all their own deadly, dead religious works. And he did it through Christ and his resurrection from the grave, which we celebrate on the Lord's Day. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is the Lord's Day is the bondage breaker, not the bondage maker. It's where we celebrate the deliverance 
from all of those seasons and festivals and diets. It's, it's where we see the completion of God's redemptive work in Christ. It's what the Sabbath day pointed to. Last Sunday I read this text where the Sabbath day is first given to the children of Israel and the purpose of it, which is largely forgotten. Observe the Sabbath day, Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but on the seventh, the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates or your male servant or your female servant, that they may rest with you as well. Here, here's my question. If a person today just read those words and said, I'm going to keep the Sabbath day and I'm going to keep it perfectly, would that be pleasing to God today? Not a trick. The answer is no, not a bit. It will do nothing for you. Here's what they were to do when they rested. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. In other words, just as keeping that shadow of the Old Testament Sabbath, it was hearkening people to ponder their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. In that same way, the Lord's Day hearkens to Christian people today to ponder and reflect on the vast significance of their deliverance from the bondage of sin and the emptiness of all other forms of religious routine. All that has been accomplished in Christ. It's so important. It's the keeping of the Lord's Day that reminds Christians of their deliverance from days and seasons and festivals and food laws. It's the honoring of the Lord's Day that celebrates deliverance from the very rituals Paul is cautioning against in Romans 14 and 15. Okay. All of that is what we were covering. Here's how I want to wind up. And it's with the one point. The point number one. But there's only one. Because Paul does something so strange. In view of everything I just said, Paul does something so strange that it ought to strike us as weird. Paul encourages, point number one, deeper doctrinal convictions, not shallower ones. Verse five ought to strike everyone in the room as being very weird advice. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. And Paul spent a lot of time saying, these things aren't, these aren't what you should be focusing your attention on. Not anymore. And then he says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I would have thought Paul would say, you know, some people, they, they came out of Judaism. They're still keeping these ceremonies. They can't just free themselves from here. This person's come out of pagan religion, a Gentile, where meat used to be sacrificed and offered to idols, and now they're suspicious that there might be demons in the meat, and they don't want to eat it. And I would think Paul would say, look, just live and let live, for Pete's sake. That's what I would have thought he would say. But he does the exact opposite. He says they've got these differences of opinion, and then he says, 
be absolutely convinced in your mind. And you wonder, Paul, where are you going with this? Why would you encourage? Won't that just make, don't those kind of doctrinal divisions, aren't they bad for the church? Doesn't this kind of stuff just split the body of Christ? It seems odd. It seems odd. You'd think Paul would just come in and say, forget this silly squabbling. But he doesn't do that. He calls the people, all of them, to make sure their minds are totally convinced. Don't think less, he says. Think more. Don't waffle. Be firm. Paul, what are you doing here? What could he be thinking? The reason I find it so fascinating is Paul's words, they fly right in the face of this modern notion that doctrine divides. We'd be better off without these doctrines that churches split into denominations and fight over. Why don't we just love one another, feed the hungry, care for the poor? James says that's pure religion. After all, it's, it's what Jesus would do. WWJD, you've seen the bracelets, or red-letter Christians. They don't worry about doctrinal differences. Just worship and love and serve. Paul, don't you know that? Actually, Paul knew something better than that. And Paul knew something deeper than that. Paul knew that theological ignorance and laziness divided people far more than doctrinal maturity and stability. He knew that as long as it's the big doctrines of the faith, doctrines don't divide the church, they unite the church. As long as the biggest doctrines are kept at the center and you work out from there. That's what Paul means when he says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's good, Paul. Convinced convinced of what? I mean, that's the question, right? Let everyone be convinced of what? In his or her own mind. And he goes on to say, I got two things to be fully convinced about in every church. A, make sure everything that you do, you do to the glory of God. In non-essential matters, the motive is more important than the deed. I said in non-essential matters. I mean, no one can commit adultery to the glory of God. No one can blaspheme to the glory of God. No one can commit idolatry to the glory of God. No one can be materialistic to the glory of God. No one can be unfaithful to a spouse to the glory of God. Where the Bible gives absolutes, we have to contend for the truth, like Paul said. There are all sorts of other issues. There are issues that aren't essential to salvation or authentic holiness. There are many things that simply are the way we've learned to live our lives, the way we've been brought up. We don't all share exactly the same practices in all the details of our lives. In these things, Paul says, seek to honor the Lord. Make sure, make sure that you're attempting to bring glory to God in everything you do. It's the motive. You see it in... In, in, in verses 6 and 7, the one who observes the day observes is in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord. He gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. So both the meat eaters and the vegetable eaters, they have God in their minds, in their actions. The same is true for those who 
kept all those Old Testament days of celebration and ritual. In their minds, they were trying their best to please and honor God. They hadn't reached a point yet where they could comfortably leave those things like the stronger people had done. Paul says God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. Here's the second thing, be fully convinced of. <clears throat> so be fully convinced of this, that everything you do, you're doing to honor the Lord in non-essentials. But here's the other thing. Be fully convinced about this. Each person must face the judgment of God at the end of his or her life. And that's why I read the text and I said, isn't it weird the way Paul seems to switch gears, the way he seems to almost change subjects in the middle of the text? He starts at verse 9, and he's talking about the church and people who observe days and people who don't, people who eat certain things and people who don't. And then all of a sudden, verse 9 for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead. The dead? Now he's talking about people who are already dead. What's that have to do with a squabble in the church? For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or your sister? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul seems to just... He really wants to remind me, to remind you. It's true, isn't it? Life is a whole lot simpler when you don't have the whole universe to run. And there are things that aren't essentials. And that people don't have to answer to you and they don't have to answer to me. They will have to answer to the Lord. We will all stand. Christians, non-Christians, all people will stand before the judgment seat of God This is, this is the idea he has in his mind in verse 4 when he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. But again, Paul isn't just saying live and let live. Peace and unity above all. He, do, he doesn't mean that. When issues of the faith are at stake, no one, he won't budge an inch. I was looking at Jude, verses 3 and 4. We're almost done. But although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, in, 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 in cardinal issues, issues of genuine faith and commitment to Christ. Don't let anybody change anything, not an inch. Don't let anyone steal away the faith. Don't let grace become just lazy indifference. Contend for things that are important, but there are also non-essential issues. Issues where we don't have clear instruction from the Lord. Those are the ones churches always fight about, by the way. The ones where we don't have clear instruction. 
what instruments should be used, loud music, soft music, hymns, choruses. Everybody's got convictions. In, in issues where someone was raised in a certain way and they've just got some standards of an issue that you don't share. But remember, they answer to Jesus. They don't answer to you. Fight for the central things. Keep them at the middle and work your way out from the center and squabble less and less about things on the periphery. And everyone said, 